Well, unless we're the first cricket podcast you've ever listened to, you, you already know that the Ashes are starting very soon. And, and since it's a fixture that stirs up so many emotions for, for Baldy and Binksy, we've recruited a guest to help them keep them on track as, as we look ahead to this series. So it's with great pleasure that we say hello to senior writer for sportingnews.com, YouTube star and, and all-around cricket personality, Melinda Farrell. Thanks for joining us on the Top Order podcast. Thanks. I, I mostly like all-around cricket personality. That's 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 something I don't think I've been called before. So yeah, I'm, I think I might put that on my resume. Well, I feel like you, yeah, you sort of <laughs> in popping up in, in all sorts of different places and in uh, different parts of the world, commentating and and uh, yeah, all sorts of different areas. So I think it's a, a I think you qualify. And popping up all around the world, it's, it's like a, a global bad smell, really, isn't it? Or just COVID. <laughs> I'm, I'm the cricket COVID, popping up all over the world, uh, mostly un, unwelcome and unneeded, but just there nonetheless. <laughs> oh, I, th- I think you're, you're doing yourself a, a disservice there. But look, before we before we get to the Ashes stuff, um, I mean, you, we talked just before that you're, you're coming to the end of your, your quarantine stint and well, kind of, we, but luckily you've had plenty of cricket to keep you entertained. And as uh, the, the only New Zealander on a New Zealand cricket podcast, for some reason, um, I've got to get a sneaky reference in there to uh, the WBBL and, and Sophie Devine's Perth Scorchers winning that competition. Have you been able to see much of the tournament this year? I mean, what have you made of it? It, it feels from over here that the women's game is in such a great place in Australia and, and so well supported. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough um, to commentate on a lot of the games for Fox Sports this year, uh, which was which was a great experience. And I, I was constantly marvelling. You know, we're so used to saying every year, oh, my gosh, they've broken new records and it's come so far. And it, it does keep happening. And, that, you know, they've, they've broken the 5 million mark this season. So more than 5 million people in Australia having watched uh, some part of the season, which is really quite incredible. Fourth most popular league of, of any code of any sporting code mm. in Australia. Uh, but I think for me, all of that was yes, fantastic, and all the games being broadcast. But I, I, the thing that's really stood out to me is just the quality of so many different areas of the game. So the, the fielding has improved drastically. But this season, just seeing some of the amazing leg spin, even though we didn't have Amelia Kerr in Australia this year, some, some of the other leg spin spinning leg spinners that we saw uh, was just absolutely outstanding. Obviously, Amanda Jade Wellington uh, in, in sort of the lead up to that final, but Alana King as well, Lily, uh, well, not her, but Georgia Wareham before she was um, injured. And some of the uh, fast bowling, some of the uh, bowling of the likes of Taylor Vlamick, Darcy Brown, even seeing we've got English people on here as well, even some of the balls bowled by Izzy Wong during the season. So we were used to seeing the batting come along, but geez, some of the bowling I thought has been absolutely terrific and, and a real joy to watch. Uh, so that, that was sort of a standout for me. I'm used to there being record-breaking figures, but we're really seeing the domestic players uh, improve so much in the quality of their cricket, uh, and they can stand shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with some of the best international stars. And, yes, Sophie Devine is, uh, has had an incredible season, and she is clearly someone you never, ever want to, uh, to bowl to in a super over because she's, she's uh, the undisputed queen of super overs. Yeah, yeah. We've we've touched on her record in, in the Super Overs. It's, it's un, unreal how how well she goes. 
But look, to, to set the scene, I guess, as we move to the Ashes, you talked just uh, you know before we started recording that you're a dual citizen. Where, where does your allegiance actually lie? Have, have you sort of reached the point where you've embraced journalistic neutrality or, or do you actually, you know, can you, can you be a, a fan in the ashes at all? I don't think so. Not for me. And, and I think that's because I've spent a lot of my adult life, professional life in England, and I've covered the England team an awful lot. Uh, and, and then obviously Australia as well. And I think because I worked for ESPN Crick Info for a long time, um, it really encourages neutrality because there'd be times, you know, I'd be in Australia and I'd be the journalist who is actually covering the Pakistan stories and pieces. Or I've been in England and I've been doing, you know, West Indies stories if we didn't have a West Indies correspondent. And you'd be writing a piece and it might be subbed by someone in India. So you get pulled up really quickly if, you know, if, if, if you're sort of writing partisan rubbish um and you know instead I just wrote rubbish but at least it's not partisan rubbish but um it, yeah and I, I don't know so I found that especially in this last the last or since about 2014 2015 being in England a lot um that really rubbed out sort of whatever uh, partisan Australianism might have been there around my journalism. And I, I don't really feel that. Um, I, I don't actually, not all the time. I want a good game, much more on the side of the story, a good, the good story. And quite often I'm on, I, I'd like to see the underdog do well. I hate seeing sort of one-sided series. So if anything, that's probably where uh, where I tend to, to, if I'm biased at all, I tend to be a little biased and just wanting to see, you know, the underdog do well or see a close series. And, and look, one last one from me before I step aside and, and let the Englishman and the, the Australian go at it. I mean, we, we're, since you are in Australia at the moment, where, where are you with the state of Cricket Australia and, and this men's team at the moment? Because I feel like watching from the outside, it's been such a strange few months. We sort of first, there was... The reports of Langer's role being shaky and the team there was unrest in the dressing room and then they go and win the T20 World Cup which we will just swiftly move on about and that you know they had such a tight group and that there was so much love for each other and then all the Tim Payne news breaks and suddenly there's talk again of players being unhappy at Cricket Australia's lack of support and I mean what what is the the general feeling I guess over there about that that side at the moment? Yeah it's been a funny one I mean I, I definitely think there has been some dissatisfaction with Langer's style um, amongst the teams. Uh, I, I do also, when you talk to him and you hear what the players have said as well, um, I think he's made a real effort to try and and sort of just be a, a little bit different, not not as much of a, a micromanager. Uh, as, as perhaps he was or the level of intensity. You only have to watch that the documentary, The Test, to see just how intense uh, Langer can be. And, and it's not to say that people can't change or become better coaches uh, as well and learn from that. And, and he appears to, to have been willing to listen. Uh, and, and that perhaps came across a little bit uh, in the T20 World Cup. He's also taken a bit of a back seat with media, I think, it, it was sort of seen that that so much ended up being about Langer. He's probably the most high-profile coach this country's had, and with that came a lot of media attention. So it felt like a, a lot of stuff was about Langer a bit too much. 
As for everything else that's happened since, I mean, you know, that it's just incredible that this bombshell has just erupted on the eve of a, an Ashes. I, I, I've never experienced an Ashes where both teams have sort of been uh, engulfed by off-field uh, major issues that, are, that have taken over. Um, you know, usually it, it, where it's people scrambling around to make a big story of, of Johnny Bairstow's forehead meeting Cameron's Bancroft cross forehead in a in a bar in Perth. Oh, for those innocent days! Uh, so it, it's it's quite amazing, really, um, and also strange because there's just no media around in Brisbane. I'm one of, I think, two journalists who's in quarantine for this test at the moment. No one else is coming up unless they lift lift the borders. Are there, one journalist is coming from Adelaide. And I think everyone else, including all the English journalists who are coming out to Australia, they're all doing it from Sydney. So it's it's sort of really weird because I don't think there's been the same kind of media intensity on the teams themselves. It's been all this off-field stuff. So, yeah, really strange times. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure Cricket Australia and the ECB will be much happier when we we'll start talking about the cricket more than everything that's happening off the field. Yeah, look, I guess it's interesting to get your take on that media build up to it. As an Englishman, it always seems as if there's controversy leading into an Australian Ashes series, whether it's Freddie Flintoff, the skipper, whether it's Ben Stokes outside a Bristol nightclub and will he or won't he get on the plane and all those kind of things. But look, on a serious note, it, it, the ECB have got some issues as, as well, obviously, with the Asim Rafiq. Um, stuff going on. Joe Root's been, look, I guess, sort of mentioned in the press dispatches around that. You, you mentioned the timing or, or you know, the, the, I guess the proximity of the Tim Payne revelations coming out. That seemed a little bit odd. It was so close. It was almost like it was uh, you know, a plant in the, in, the, in the press from the Daily Mirror or someone like that. <laughs> Do you think this is going to have an effect on either of those camps? You know, And I guess a little bit like the Ollie Robinson um, situation in his test debut where you know everybody's going to be looking through social media now to try and find, look, I guess, some of those sort of topical stories. Do you think that's going to play a part in the start of this series? Have we got more to come before we kick off at the Gabba in a week or so's time? I've got to hope not because I'm not sure if I can handle any more. Um, one of the reasons I mentioned the fact that journalists aren't up here and those those few of us who are, so there are some local Brisbane-based journalists who, who are able to get to things. But what it's allowed, uh, England have done virtually no media. They've done hardly any since they got to the country, which is really quite unusual. Um, and you know, people couldn't—they they haven't weren't even been able to be doorstopped. You know, the airport that people couldn't ask questions or or even get more than you know uh, images from a long way away. Uh, and and also now that there aren't a lot of Australian journalists around, and and there have been you know fairly controlled media appearances by Zoom um, as we've we've sort of gone through the last week. So that's all really really unusual. Uh, and especially, for, you know, there's just always people around and, and looking for things and a slight incident at training. You know, if people see things, it, it can get blown up. Um, the, the press conferences feel shorter and a little bit more clinical because they're, they're all being done via Zoom. So, again, it's more controlled as a, the media, um, media manager sort of lets people go sort of one at a time and can wrap it up uh, as, soon as, as soon as they're done. 
So, so all of that has been a little bit strange. I think actually England have benefited from that the most because they arrived here in, in any other Ashes build-up, the heat would have been on England and what was happening at home and, you know, people really getting stuck into them in the Australian media because the Australian media can be really brutal. Let's not forget that. Um, that, that would have, the heat would have been really on them, I think. But while all this stuff has happened with, with Tim Payne and the captaincy and everything else, all the Australian news bulletins and papers have been full of, of you know, issues in Australian cricket. So they've just been able to really kind of just go about their business under the radar, some in quarantine, but training, all of that kind of thing. So I think it's sort of benefited them because they've been cocooned a little bit in a way that would never normally happen on any England tour, let alone the Ashes. Uh, we'll see how it affects Australia. It's obviously got the, the most, I think, immediate impact on Australia because, A, they've got, you know, a brand-new captain. Um, and so we're yet to, you know, first time that they've ever had a sort of full-time uh, bowl, fast bowling captain. And they've got to, you know, decide on a new wicketkeeper. So there's there are a few more sort of on-field things I think they that, that, that will have sort of an effect on them that have sort of come out of the past um, couple of weeks. Yeah, certainly to to speculate on and, and lots of conjecture to be had in the Australian in the Australian side. Let's start at the top of the order on the Top Order podcast. Um, you wrote a lovely piece about the, all the work that Marcus Harris has done to put aside the the nightmares and the and the the trial by fire that he was subjected to by Stuart Broad in the last Ashes series in England. Warner similarly struggled against Stuart Broad around the wicket. What kind of work have those guys done to put aside those demons, and what can you expect from them in terms of bouncing back in diff- admittedly different conditions in Australia? to what they would have experienced in England. Yeah, I think, well, both of them have. Thanks for reading my piece. I appreciate that. You and my mum both. Um, but they, they, they were obviously that that plan for the right-handers, in particular Stuart Broad, but but also Jimmy Anderson and, and Joffre Archer did it too in coming around the wicket to the left-handers. Now, it, it's they have, they have well, I'd, I'd say Marcus Harris has done the most sort of work because it was it was really glaringly obvious with them although Stuart Broad also had Dave Warner's number you feel like David Warner has been around long enough to know his game well enough at international level uh, that that he might be you know able to make those those adjustments to whether it's his stance or or where he takes his guard or or the kind of area of the ground he's he's hitting to so Marcus Harris without having as much experience I think has really worked on that um, over in in England, he's he's was saying you know he used to be a bit of a dasher trying to drive through the offside a lot when he was younger, and he's he's kind of changed things up a, a little bit now. Uh, the big question for me is uh, like you expect England are going to try it surely if if it's worked well last time, you think that they're going to try it pretty early on um, whenever they get the chance to to bowl to the to Australia's openers, and it, it's just how effective that will be with a kookaburra ball uh, in Australian conditions where it's perhaps not uh, swinging as much and where it also might not seem as much, the kookaburra ball. Uh, so that that for me is like first first up one of the most interesting subplots of the match. And Marcus Harris said himself he he's going to be intrigued to, to, to watch it because he thinks they're going to have to bowl a fuller length 
because the ball won't be swinging or the, the bounce, uh, bounciness of the pitches in Australia means it's more likely that um, they have to bowl fuller to keep the stumps in play. So, you, so that for me is just going to be a, a big, interesting subplot early on. Will it work as much? If they're able to make it work again early with those two openers, you'd have to imagine that would be a bit of a psychological kind of edge as well, uh, knowing that they were able to get them out so often uh, last time that they played in England. Speaking of subplots, obviously selection, a big hot-button topic now with Tim Payne taking a step aside from the Australian team. But obviously there's also the number five position to consider for Australia. It looks like it might be a, a shootout between Travis Head and Usman Kawaja, although there was talk of, of lots of other players potentially taking part in that series. And now we're talking about Kerry versus Inglis or, or someone even like Jimmy Pearson making a debut for Australia. Who do you think the Australians will go with in terms of the selection for that first test? And how close is Mitchell Marsh realistically from getting a look in in that Australian test squad after his heroics in the UAE? I don't think Mitch Marsh's heroics in the UAE will really be, be seen as um, a massive calling card for this series. And that's not to say that he won't be there again in the future. But I do think there's that delineation between certainly T20 cricket and test cricket. So uh, I don't know how much you, you can read into, into that. I do think it, it at this stage, I do think it's between Travis Head and, and Usman Kawaja. Uh, Travis Head is, is one who has played most recently for Australia and, and Australia tend to, you know, try and value incumbency uh, quite a bit. And Travis Head has for a long time been seen as, a player who's valued for his leadership qualities. He, he became, you know, captain of, of South Australia, a very young age. Uh, and, and he has scored, you know, a mountain of runs at Sheffield Shield level. It's just been that he's performed well in tests against sides where Australia has been very dominant. And then not, he's been one of the players, you know, who, who hasn't necessarily scored the runs against tougher opposition. Uh, so that's been the difficulty and was what's seen him sort of, in and out of the side a, a, a few times, but he was also seen as a you know a player who can be quite aggressive and move the game along. So he, he's got really strong credentials for that role. Usman Kawaja's performance in Sheffield Shield cricket has been brilliant. What may help him the most is actually uh, an innings that he scored in a, a Sheffield Shield match at the Gabba recently where it, the weather was very steamy, the ball was hooping around, uh, there were wickets falling and he made, I think, 70-odd runs, which which seemed like it was 150 uh, because no one else made any runs in, in that in that particular innings. Um, it was really tough at the Gabba. So maybe that might help him. Th those are the sort of factors that I think are, are probably in selectors' minds or the they're things that make each of those players stand out. And this captaincy model for Australia, you mentioned Travis Head's leadership credentials, and that's probably something that works in his favour in terms of this selection battle that he's in at the moment. This Australian captaincy, though, is a very unique position where you've got a captain who's clearly um, the best, if you like, um, figurehead for Australian cricket moving forward in terms of Pat Cummins. I think Australians could get behind a leader like Pat Cummins Stephen Smith has obviously got a, a wonderful cricket brain and a very good tactical brain by all reports. And that captaincy 
dynamic is going to be very interesting to watch on the field when Pat Cummins eventually has to get some hydration into him between between spells. Is there a precedent for this kind of mixed model of captaincy that we've seen either in cricket or in other sports? And how do you see it playing out for Australia across? It's going to be a pretty heated test series in terms of that baptism of fire for Pat Cummins as captain of the Australian side. Yeah, and I should point out to you, Usman Khawaja does have captaincy credentials because he does captain Queensland. Mm. So uh, I will sort of put those in there as well. Um, but it is the next, uh, you know, when you talk about the subplots and the, the little narratives of this, that is certainly a huge one from Australia's perspective. And, and I guess, you know, one of the reasons being, you know, Teams always target the opponent's captain, and the captain's nearly always a bat is nearly always a batter. So they're they're always you know wanting whether it's Virat Kohli, you know whether it's Joe Root. These are the players that that the opposition wants to get out uh, and and really get on top of because they know that it can really hurt a team. So so in a way, it's it's not just about the decision making. It's also right. How are they going to do this? Are they going to try and get on top of him when they're batting, or do they just go look when you know? We're, we're not going to bother so much about that. We'll, we'll just target, say, Smith and, and Labashine. Um, but it, it is, and I, I don't think they know how it's going to work yet um, because it's all new and they're working it out. I, I thought they were both really impressive uh, when they gave the press conference last week. And, and Steve Smith, he acknowledged that there would be a lot of people, including Australians, who don't think he deserves to be there, uh, don't think he should be in a leadership position again. And, and he kind of acknowledged that. And it was quite amazing. His whole um, demeanour was one of such deference. He, he called Pat Cummins Patrick every single time he referred to him. I've never heard him call him Patrick before. It, and it, even his body language, it was, you know, constantly gesturing to him and it was so deferential. Uh, so so that was interesting to me to see how that uh, side of things plays out, if he's as deferential on the field or if, you know, there are times when, you know, you can see him saying to Pat, mate, pull yourself away from the bowling now. You know, you've got to get off. We've got to bring someone else on. I don't know if um, uh, if that will happen like that, but it, it's certainly something that everyone's going to be on the lookout for. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's pretty fascinating. I mean... Pat Cummins was was basically run into the ground last summer um, against India, and he was the only one who could to be relied upon every time Tim Payne threw in the ball and India were getting stuck in and everyone else was sort of withering away and wilting. Um, so, I, I mean, that's it. If England can manage to keep him out in the field for really long periods of time, uh, make him as tired as they possibly can, I think that would be the equivalent of targeting an opposition uh, batsman and, and, you know, trying to get him out quickly. It's going to be the opposite thing to, to what we normally see. Keep, keep them there for as long as possible. Mm. Yeah, look, I guess that um, assumes that the England batting lineup, which, yeah, is probably, uh, we'll come on to who's more settled in that top five, England or Australia, a little bit further, but can they get three spells into to, to Patrick Cummins' uh, legs. Um, I'm sure we put that up on the stump mics, right? They, they, the England players would just be calling him Patrick in a sort of a affected, posh tone for the rest of the, the series. And um, from, I guess, Australia's pace gun to England's attack, uh, a lot made of needing that supreme pace. If you listen to 
a, a lot of the commentary around that. But I think even if we go back to 2010-11, where England obviously won the Ashes for the first time down under for a long, long time, they didn't really have express pace in that um, attack. What do you think about how settled that is? Can Chris Wokes be effective with that Cookaburra ball away from home? Is, is Robinson a lock? You know, what, what do you see the makeup of that England attack looking like for the first game at the Gabba? Well, so if we're talking about interesting subplots and, and storylines and narratives, for me, another one, so these are all the things I'm writing up, I'm sure I'm writing pieces on all of this at one point, is to see how Ollie Robinson goes. Um, because he's the one who is clearly in, of, that, of that type of model of, as Josh Hazelwood is the one he's compared to most often. Uh, he has the ability to move the ball both ways. Uh, he, he's not he's not quite as quick, I don't think, as as um, Josh Hazelwood, but I don't think he's far off. It might be very very similar or close to him. But it's he's got the height as well. That for me is going to be maybe a real key for England in whenever they do play him. And I, I'd be amazed if they didn't play him in the first test just because of how well he's gone um, in the England summer. Um, and, and because he's a bit of an unknown, I think, for a lot of the Australians. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll see. They, I mean, they may not. But, but for me, he's one. I mean, Chris Wokes just hasn't done as well in Australia um, in the past. But, um, but Ollie Robinson could be a little point of difference. I mean, I was obviously gutted that Jofra Archer wasn't able to come out because I was so excited at the thought of seeing Jofra Archer bowl with a red ball in Australia and seeing what he could do. England still have got express pace too in the shape of Mark Wood. I don't think anyone expects Mark Wood to play five tests uh, on the trot. So I'm kind of getting the feeling with this that you may be very much looking at the different situations. There's been so much rain. All the, uh, all the games are being washed out. Not, and neither of them, I don't think, are going to get anything other than nets and maybe the odd centre wicket. Uh, before the test starts because it genuinely has been raining every single day and it's going to it's forecast to rain every single day up until the day before the test starts so just what that does to things you know if that gives England a, a you know levels things up a bit bowling wise to see you know if if Jimmy Stewart and, and Jimmy Stewart Jimmy Stewart <laughs> the, the famous the famous Hollywood actor who is also uh, the hybrid of Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad, um, just, just to sort of see what they're able to do. And, and you know, you could see them backed up with an, with an Ollie Robinson if the ball is actually nipping around quite a bit. And then, of course, we've got an Adelaide and a pink ball test. And that's another one where we might see the ball nipping around a bit. So I think maybe these first two tests actually could suit England a little bit more. I mean, I think still think Australia are favourites, but if if you were to choose two tests where it might suit England more, you would think bowling-wise that that the Gabba and a day-night test in Adelaide might be the two that they'd be happiest with. Yeah, absolutely. We, we said that on an earlier podcast. My um, preference for grounds was all five to be played in a bubble and under lights to Adelaide with a pink ball because I reckon we might nip a couple there. Um, hey, well, it well, might be, I was just going to say, it might be, might be two um, pink ball tests. I think that's looking pretty likely at the moment because I, I genuinely don't think Perth is going to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the favourite at the moment would be a day-night test at the MCG to replace it. So that could be very interesting as well. 
awesome. I'm sure that I'll have some purists um, turning in their uh, yeah uh, turning in their uh, bacon and eggs in the morning. And we'll talk about batting questions. So I'll kind of lead into this with Ben Stokes making the tour. So number one, what impact do you think he has mentally just on the rest of the England setup? And then how does that play into, I guess, which side has got more batting questions now? Because Stokes clearly just slots in at five and uh, and strengthens that middle order for England. Yeah, I mean, I think Ben Stokes' inclusion helps mentally on different levels. Like, Obviously, he helps the confidence. You, you feel more confident, wouldn't you, if you had Ben Stokes coming in uh, and knowing what he did to Australia at Headingley. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone anyone would sort of not feel that way. Obviously, it allows for a better balance uh, for the England side all round when it comes to selection. I think it just makes it easier. That, I think, helps them mentally as well in just knowing that, that they've got that extra. Okay, he's a great player but he's also helping our side to be a better balanced side. Um, so, so I do think it's a, a huge mental boost. I, I'm just so delighted that he's back and, and feeling better because I absolutely love watching him play. Um, not, long before that Headingley test I, I did, uh, I love watching him train. He, he's just a, an incredible athlete. So, so it definitely does. I, the, the batting question, it obviously helps Joe Root as well as far as, you know, not having all your batting cards in one basket. That's a really bad analogy, isn't it? You, you'd think, you wouldn't think I wrote for a living. Um, but, but it definitely must help to, to have that bit of extra shoring up of the batting to support Joe Root. Uh, both sides have got some flaws, but it, I think it might depend on if, if England have the bowling to really uh, dry up Australia and, and just kind of squeeze them the way that India did last year. Uh, it, was, it was pretty incredible the way that they did it. They, they took Australia's bowlers apart. Their, their bowlers took Australia's batters apart, was all around. But um, there were flaws last year. You know, David Warner didn't look last summer like the David Warner that we've seen in, in previous years, but then he also struggled a bit uh, in the Ashes in England. Marcus Harris, as we've spoken about as well, you know, the, the jury's still out on that. Travis Head, if he's there, he's had trouble sometimes when the, the pressure's been on. Really, the, the two best batters in the Australian lineup in the past couple of years have, have clearly been Marnus Labuschagne, and Steve Smith, and, and even Steve Smith sort of struggled more last summer, you'd say that Manus Labuschagne was the most consistently strong Australian batter. So I just think it depends on how they're allowed to, to perform as well, because there are flaws there that can be exploited. England have definitely got some flaws around that top order, you, you have to admit. Um, and uh, and that goes back to you know, performances in different conditions over the past sort of year in particular um I, I wonder if David Milan might do a bit better this this summer that'll be another little subplot that that I'll be looking out for because obviously he made a that that century uh, at the Wacker last time and I think he's he's batting probably he's, he's a little bit more suited to Australian conditions than it might be in other parts of the world so that'll be an interesting one for me but there are definitely cracks to be found in that England uh, batting lineup and Joe Root's papered over a lot of them solo uh, in a way. Um, 
So, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll find out, won't we? But uh, I expect there to be a, a lot of testing of, of some of those top-order players by, by the Australians uh, very, very early at the first opportunity that, that they can. So two flawed batting sides, um, Australia with an excellent batting lineup, on-paper favourites. Um, but, you, you know, you just don't know, do you? You just don't know. I wouldn't like to pre- confidently predict anything. So um, just jumping back in here, you, you touched on Manus just before. I, I do want to get predi- to predictions and I, I will make you make a, a prediction, but I'll, I'll make the others uh, do it as well. So you won't be on your oh. own there. But on Manus, do, do you feel like um, he's kind of reached his peak? Do we think there's more to gain with him? Because I, I suppose to someone who doesn't support Australia at all, um, I watched, you know, I watch him and his record has just been unbelievable. And it seemed to come from nowhere in terms of his first class record. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about everything that he did in county cricket and, and how that kind of led in. And he was in such great form and all that stuff. And then it seems like he's kind of gone back to first class cricket since the end of that great run and hasn't really set the world on fire. Maybe I haven't paid enough attention there, but where, where is everyone at with him? Because it seemed like he was rising to the point where he was going to be in the conversation with Smith and Coley and Williamson and, and Baba and, and all of those, you know, the real elites Roots. of that. Oh, yeah, Joe Root. Yeah, the real elites of, of <laughs> Test cricket. Well, I mean, his ranking's been up there. Uh, I'm not sure what the rankings are today, but, but Manus has been right up there. Uh, I, I guess, you know, he, he's perhaps not seen... When you look at the others that you talk about, the elites, they've done it over a longer period of time. So I guess it's, it's seen sort of how, how Manus has had a couple of exceptional years starting from 2019 when he had that recall, you know, the Joffre Archer bouncer that, that concussed Steve Smith and, and gave him Manus his chance and he grabbed it with both hands. So he, he's had a couple of really good years. I think if he has a, a great Ashes um then it might start to happen. The other reason that he, he might not be seen that way is don't forget, Australia haven't played a lot of test cricket in the past two years. I mean, they haven't, they haven't played a test away since that 2019 Ashes. And that series is the only series that they've played away from home since the Sandpaper Gate series uh, against South Africa. So it's a bit hard for someone, you know, if they're pretty much playing all their test cricket on their home pitches um, rarely having a sort of foray outside, it probably becomes you know a bit hard to say. Well, they're in this particular this particular group, uh, so so maybe there's a little bit of, of that's why. Um, I, I think the reason that he, I don't think he was at all ready for serious um, contention for the captaincy, even though you know he, as I said, he's probably been Australia's most consistently performed batter in the past couple of years. Um, uh, he's just, I just don't think he's there. He's still, you, you see him at, at training, he still comes across very much as you're watching it, as the kind of little kid who sort of annoys everyone a bit, but he's also really enthusiastic and sort of jumping around and wanting to bowl and, yes, Manus, every time he thinks he's taken a wicket in the net. Um, so it, it, there's just something, a totally different demeanour to how you saw sort of Tim Payne uh, at training or even Steve Smith. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying that Manus couldn't be in the future if he continues his good form, uh, but maybe just that 
you know, he, he wasn't, he's still fairly new as far as seniority in the Australian cricket team goes. Um, but it'll, it'll be a big series for, for him for sure. Um, just to, you know, cement, I guess, his position and, and keep that, that good form going. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll just see. He's had a couple of incidents in Sheffield Shield and maybe there's some frustration for when he hasn't made runs, you know, just the old celebrity appealing. Uh, things like that. Uh, even I, I think he was copying it a bit too when a recent match in at Karen Rolton Oval in in Adelaide um, ended up being sort of abandoning play because of of the pitch, uh, the few balls rearing up off a length down there, and and he was particularly unhappy with it. And and I, I noticed a little bit of criticism sort of surrounding him over that. So maybe there's been a bit of pressure getting to him as well. I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, a proof will be, I guess, uh, when it when it comes to batting. But I, I think he'll, you know, definitely relish the thought of being out there on the test stage once more um, in an Ashes series because that's the series that that made him. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think as you say, of all the kind of uh, I guess interesting subplots that that you've kind of touched on, that's that's one that I'm particularly interested in as as a as a neutral um but as i said i will get you to make predictions on the series but how about i let the other two go first because uh, what you'll find i imagine i'm going to make a my own prediction here is that binksy will say that australia win and baldy will say <laughs> that england will win because that's kind of what they they each have their own little uh sort of scenario that they go through to try and make the opposite happen or to to you know <laughs> kind of get some some credit so why don't we start with Binksy yeah five nil Australia for me <laughs> um, um, look, I, I, I think as we've sort of talked about I think we're talking about two flawed batting sides and um, England I think have got some some questions there I know Bordy sort of put down his predicted teams etc I think that um Look, England, I don't think really know what their, you know, what their top six should be exactly um, at, at this stage. So I think there's still some questions around um, who bats at three. I, I think they liked the look of Zach Crawley two years ago and had kind of almost penciled him in for this series. And he's almost like kind of unpickable now, I think, for, for that first test match. And then, yeah, look, from a bowling perspective, they'd have really loved Jofra Archer um, as, a, as an option here, um, or even Ollie Stone, just so they've got those two out-and-out quicks to, to to rotate throughout the course of the series, at least as an option. I can see us nicking a test match, though. I, I can. Um, you, you know, the, Brisbane is not the uh, the gabatoire that it, that, it, uh, that it has been since India came in and breached it so egregiously for uh, for Australia last year. So, um, look, who knows with a lack of match practice, if England have managed to get some covert training in, in the bubble in between complaining about the, the yogurts on offer, which I've seen a lot of from Stuart Broad, and um, you know, they might nick that test at, at the Gabba. Um, but look, I, I do think it's going to be Australia three or four one, if we don't get too many weather interruptions throughout the, um, throughout the summer, but even that's not a lock in Australia with, uh, El Nino. Baldy, over to you. I'll see your one win for England, Adam, and I'll raise you another win. I think it's going to be a two-all draw this series with a drawn test match due to weather somewhere along the way. There you go. Okay, Melinda, over to you now. You can settle the debate. Well, actually, funny you should say that because I have to stick with... Wisdom.com did ask me um, for some predictions 
and I did go with two all as well for them. So possibly, you know, just the feeling that I like the feeling of splinters in my ass. I don't know, <laughs> sitting sitting on the fence wherever possible. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of where I am. Two all maybe leaning towards three one Australia. But, uh, you know, we'll see. It, it, I, I hope, I'd love to see it come down to a deciding day-night test at, at the MCG because that would be spectacular in January. It would be amazing. And for a state that's gone through so much as, as Victoria has, yeah. I, I think that the, the people there would appreciate it so much. So that's what I would love to see happen. Uh, I'll stay with two all, but, but also leaning a bit more on the side of an Australian victory. Okay, fair enough. Uh, we, uh, I won't, uh, I'll stay completely out of it because <laughs> I can't be anything to do with Australia and New Zealand. It sort of doesn't really, uh, there's, there's not uh, a logical answer, but look, it's been great chatting with you. And, and before we let you go, um, I guess t- you can tell everyone where people can find you and, and your work online, but also Will you be doing uh, the good, the bad, and the ridiculous with Barat uh, for, the, for the Ashes? Yeah, uh, yes, thank you. Um, no, I, we, yes, we have plans. We're we're going to be doing a few different things. Um, so yes, we'll we'll definitely be there doing uh, the good, the bad, and the ridiculous uh, for the first time together in the same place uh, since last summer. So that's quite nice. exciting. I'm very excited about seeing uh, Barat because I haven't seen him since uh, just after he came to to. To visit on his drive back to Adelaide um, and stayed with me and my mum in Orange, which was which was really lovely. So that will be back. So you can find that on my YouTube channel. Uh, I'll be doing lots of writing for for Sporting News uh, Australia, of course, uh, and uh, who knows, I might be popping up in in a few other places as well. TBC. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, well, look, yeah, like I said, it's it's been absolutely great to to chat with you, and and thanks for you know playing referee to to these two. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you very much, and and enjoy the series. We we hope we, I you know much like you, I, I do hope it really comes down to the wire. It would be would be brilliant. Yeah, and thanks for having me, guys. You've helped me pass a really great period of time on on day nine of quarantine, and for that, I am truly grateful. Mm-hmm.